Welcome to Archery Country Podcast. Welcome back to another episode of Archery Country Podcast as we are throwing the ball to the Wade Park location as they take turkey hunting dissected from strategies, equipment, and hunting. The boys, Buck, Adam, Troy, and John will take you on the roller coaster ride called turkey hunting. Doesn't matter if you're into flip-flops, dipping dots, or hip-hop. We got something for everybody. Sit back and relax. Hello, hello, everybody. I hope everyone's doing good. Uh, we are here with another installment of our podcast. We're here located in the Wade Park area and today i've got brandon to the left of me brandon how's it going good very good awesome and adam how's it going doing good you're looking good are you excited for this podcast yeah it's about a springtime topic i'm just ready for winter to be done oh i think all of us are yes yes and then the famous john john how you doing i'm doing really good tonight i'm pretty excited about this one awesome i'm excited too to dive into this topic because Unlike a lot of people who are still kind of, I would say, fixated on shed hunting. Hey. <laughs> That's a low blow, man. <laughs> My gears are totally ready for the turkey season, upcoming turkey season. And uh, we're going to dive in with a few things. We're just going to chat a little bit about how we hunt turkeys, what we use, we're going to maybe share some stories on this podcast, and we're going to discuss a little bit with Adam, because Adam, you haven't hunted turkeys too much, right? Not with a bow. Just Not with a shotgun. Bow. Yep. Just once or multiple times? Multiple times. Have you been successful yet? Yeah. I wouldn't <laughs> go otherwise. I was just curious. Well, first, let's start out with a gear topic. I, I kind of want to go around the table, talk to you guys, find out what it is you're using, why you're using it, and what maybe benefits you have from using it. Who wants to start, guys? Who's diving in? I guess I'll dive in right away. Brandon, always the go-getter. Yeah. <laughs> so I guess gear, um, obviously I'm archery hunting them, so I'm using a bow. When I'm going myself, I'm using a big mechanical. So I just run my same arrows, which I've been using the Victory Rip TKOs. What mechanical and are you using? I've been using a Grim Reaper, the Whitetail Special. And that's um, a three blade? It is. It's a three blade, two inch. So it, when it opens, it's the old school flip back style, um, which I think for turkeys works a little better. Kind of punches them a little harder. Generally, your arrow's not maybe going all the way through. Keeping that arrow on the bird, I think, helps from them being able to run away or take flight and fly away. I've had really good luck with them. Um, a lot of customers have had good luck with them too. As far as, you know, the other sets of gear I'm using, I run a mouth call and then I run a slate call. Or a friction call, some guys will call it. I don't do a lot of calling myself, but... You find that some. calling less is Yeah, more. I think part of that is I'm probably not a very good caller. Um, but I've had better luck with, you know, calling a little bit. And if I see birds and they're committing, you know, even if it's from a couple hundred yards out, they're coming in the decoys, I I don't call unless I feel I would have to again. So if the birds are still coming, I, I just lay off. Kind of let the decoys do the work. Circling kind of back, uh, when you're using your broadhead, which like which one do you prefer more? Do you like going for a body shot, or do you prefer like the decap? Yeah, so I use the decap. So actually, for probably four or five years, um, the only reason that I'm not using them now is my turkey hunting has switched more to just bringing my kids out. So like last year, I didn't even turkey hunt for myself. 
I sat, I think it was eight or nine times it took for both my boys to fill their tags. And by that time I was done waking up early in the morning after nine times of that. Um, so I just don't spend as much time now getting my broadhead set up for my bow, knowing that I'm probably not going to be hunting myself, but I'm taking my kids out and going for them. So I've just switched to back to the Grim Reapers body shooting, which is what I used to use. How have your kids done? Have they been taken they, out? Yeah, we've been, we've been very fortunate. Nice. Uh, actually, one of the customers um, that shops in our store lets me take my kids out to his land. He's got a good, good piece of property, a lot of turkeys out there. And so we set up some blinds and set decoys up and yeah. So how, how different is your, like your, let's say your arrow set up for the two different types? Oh, they're quite a bit different. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so like uh, the head choppers, I'm actually using the same arrow, the RIP TKO, but in a stiffer spine. And then obviously leaving that at full length, fletching that with four fletch feathers just for better stabilization. You know, those head choppers, it's a big, really big broadhead. I was shooting the solid decaps, which I believe that's a three inch cut. Three blade, three inch? Three blade, five inch total cut. Oh, five inch total cut. Yeah, so I mean, it's a whopper. Yeah. So you really need something to stabilize that arrow, right, to make it fly good. Um, so the arrow setup's quite a bit different if you're going to shoot, you know, mechanical or fixed blade versus something that you're going to shoot the heads with. So how, there's a little bit more into that. So then how do you decipher, like, with your pins and stuff with, between the two different ones, is it, are they similar or is it? Um, no, is it I mean, just because the weight change? of that broadhead is so much different in the arrow length. I guess when I was shooting the head, the head choppers, um, I was generally just shooting one or two pins, setting up a 10-yard pin, and then maybe a 20-yard pin, and that was it. You know, you're usually hoping they're coming right into the decoys at five yards or 10 yards, and you're hoping to get that real close shot. Mm-hmm. So Nice. John, how about you? What's, what's your setup look like? What kind of gear are you taking out with you? Uh, so I would say uh, gear for turkey hunting. Um, definitely a ground blind is something that I... Uh, consider a necessity um for especially archery hunting uh just to be able to cover up like your draw uh turkey's got really really good eyesight so it seems like they're still kind of numb to the blinds especially in areas where they're not pressured as much i have hunted a few areas where um you know the birds had kind of seen the song and dance a few times in a row and actually would like brush blinds in there and it seemed to make a difference which was pretty crazy you know you see guys that have their ground blinds out literally in the middle of a cut cornfield and i've actually killed a bird doing that before too um but yeah ground blind uh is a necessity for me and then a really comfortable chair well (laughs) with with the ground blind how you said you've seen people go ahead and set up in an open field versus brushing it in. How important do you think it is to brush in? You know, honestly, I don't think it's important at all. But with that one rare occasion where it was like, man, these birds just, they're not they're cooperating. They're super spooky. Something, yeah, they, they know. Like that thing means danger. And we know that other people had hunted that land that year and it had been hunted every year historically. So it was like, hey, let's just move the blind a couple hundred yards and let's actually like just brush it in. And within, like, we set the the blind up, put decoys out, crawled back in. Like, we weren't even sitting down yet, and there was a bird, like, committing into the decoy spread. It must have just not seen us, and, like, timing was just right kind of thing. It could have been a pure luck thing. Yep. But it made us feel really good. So, you know, whatever it <laughs> right. takes, right? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, ground blind, uh, good, comfortable chair, um, you know, especially if you're going to be out there for a few hours at a time. I, I like to be comfortable. So I bought one of those like Millennium G100 ground blind chairs a couple of years ago. That thing is cherry. Nice. Uh, very, very comfortable. Um, as far as like 
decoys and bow setup goes. You want me to talk about that too? Yeah, okay. absolutely. Um, so like decoys, uh, early season, uh, like right when it opens, I really like using a full strut decoy. I have a like a real tail fan put onto mine, and that opening week here seems like that is like a, just a killer combination. I don't know if the birds are fully like breeding yet, but it seems like they're definitely still doing like their pecking order thing and putting out uh, another male into the run of things. It seems like they kind of come in and just want to beat the snot out of it. And I've had very good success the last few years over that opening week with a full strut decoy. We still put a couple of hens out with it. If my season goes longer than that, I might transition away from that full strut decoy into like a Jake with some hens or maybe just some hens or maybe just one single hen. Uh, just kind of let the birds dictate, you know, what what works and what doesn't. Have you ever used like the, I know AvianX, they have that quarter strut decoy. Have you ever used something like that? Do you think there's a difference between have, the two? I know I I have myself. I don't know if you have, John, but I've used that before and have had luck with it. So the three-quarter strut. Like what the he's saying. The three-quarter strut yeah. one that's like flocked on the back. Yep. Those do look really, really nice. I don't have one of those. I haven't used one of those myself, but... I'm sure any kind of male bird that looks like it's, you know, in a position of dominance. Somewhat engaged to that hand. And yeah, that, you know, oh, yeah, some other Tom comes out. Maybe it's a little older or a little bigger. Or like, he's lived in that area for the last couple of weeks. And like, hey, this guy hasn't been here. Like, I'm going to go show him what's up. I think that's yep. the idea of that, that opening week for, for Minnesota, especially central Minnesota, right? I don't know about nebraska or south dakota or iowa like when their seasons open i know nebraska opens earlier but i've never i've only turkey hunted in minnesota i'd imagine it's just like the deer rut happens at different times in different places i would think so yeah very nice and adam yeah so for my setup again trying to explore all that that's what i'm hoping to kind of learn tonight as well as what type of broadhead to use whether i'm going to go a head lopper route or if i'm going to try and do just uh, an expandable broadhead same thing I'd probably use for deer hunting as well. But the bow, I already know it's going to be a Bowtech, Revolt XL, all that good stuff. But again, I'm shooting VAP SS 300 spine for deer. And I'm assuming I could probably just put on that, like say a Grim Reaper, if I went that route. Right. I could put that on there. It's going to tune just fine. But I'd have to know the pros and cons of going to like a head lopper type setup. And then with the longer draw length, I'm going to need a really long arrow to clear that broadhead past my sight. Mm -hmm. And so finding one that's 33 inches or whatever. I'm wondering, I'm just my own personal views here, right? I actually, I'm wondering if you would even be able to use like that style head chopper with your draw length to find yeah, an just, arrow long enough. Just for everybody enough. to know, Adam, what, you shoot like a 31 and a half, right? 31. 31, yeah, so you got a longer draw. Most of us aren't quite as stretched out as you are. So for people that want to shoot them, most guys aren't going to have an issue, you know, with a full length arrow, unless you're at that, you know, 30, 31, 32 inch draw. That's where you get a little tough. Now, when you say that, are you just worried about like where that broadhead's going to be resting at full draw? Yeah, Is that why you bring that up? Yeah. Right. So it's not hitting your sight. And I think even if I ran my sight in all the way, there's still a chance it could interfere. Right. So like uh, probably an axis. Would that be about the only uh, Axis arrow? 260 is 34 inches right. in a full-length shaft? Right, so and then if you, put like a, if you put like a half-out insert to add a little length to that or something, that would probably work. But then again, I want to know the benefits of right. going to that type of broadhead as compared to just running the same arrow, same setup, same broadhead as I would for deer. But 
when it comes to decoys and, and calls, I haven't really invested in that because usually I'm just a trigger man. I'm usually going with somebody that's, they've spent their money on the decoys. They know how to call birds and I just got to make it happen when the timing's right. I think between all those guys in the shop, we, we could probably make that happen this year. Sounds good to me. I mean, you guys can take me hunting whenever you want. Should we, uh, like, you know, so Adam never archery hunted turkey and you're right now pros and cons, body shooting versus head shooting. Should we just like run through that quick? And like, Brandon, yeah. why don't you talk about uh, body shooting with the mechanical and then I'll go right. the other so, route. Yeah, I think as far as body shooting, you know, the pros to that for most guys, if you've never turkey hunted and it's something you want to try, you really don't have to switch anything up, all right? So you can transition from, hey, I've got my bow set up, my pins are dialed in from deer hunting. You can just use the same arrows, maybe even the same broad that you're using, or maybe come in and get a little bit bigger diameter mechanical but that broad is probably going to fly the exact same as, you know, everything you've been shooting for deer, right? So you don't need to change anything. It's a little easier to get into then. As far as hitting the bird, you know, the, the broadhead's going to fly good, right? So you don't have as much tuning as the head lobber, but you definitely have to be more precise on your shot. The vitals on a turkey sit a little different than what most people would think, and they are tough. Like, if you don't hit the vitals, I mean, the birds, you're getting feathers, right? So you have to definitely be more precise on your shot. Really be cautious of how is that bird turning? Is he strutting? You know, those vitals are just going to sit different at every position that bird is. And so for someone that's never done it before, you know, maybe getting on YouTube, there's a lot of videos out there where, you know, they show where the vitals are if the bird is just standing, if the bird is full strut, facing away from you, facing straight on, right? So those are definitely things you have to pay attention to. Um, that, yeah, the, that full strut one can be a killer for guys. Right. I don't know how many times I've seen the feathers just go ripping and they're jumping up and down. Yeah, I nailed them. And no, you didn't. <laughs> yeah, I mean, when they're strutting, the bird looks like a, you know, it's a beach ball size target. Oh, absolutely. But the vitals are really the size of, you know, put your put your fist together. That's how big the vitals are. And so you really got to know where those vitals are sitting. So it's a little more crucial, you know, with, with any type of body shooting broadhead to really pay attention to where you're aiming at what the angle that bird is versus, you know, head shooting, you know, I'll let you go into that, John, but I mean, that's pretty self-explanatory where you're going to shoot. Oh, well, exactly. So with, uh, with a head lobber style arrow or a, a decap style broadhead, you're, you're taking away the, the angles. Is it strutted? Is it not strutted? You've got usually, you know, that turkey when they're fired up, usually that neck is just bright red. That's what you aim at. It makes it pretty easy. It doesn't matter what angle the bird is turned. Is it broadside? Is it facing you? You know, if it's facing away from you in full strut, well, you, you have no shot with that, right? Um, your disadvantage with a head lobber is going to be maybe for like a newer archer, uh, depending on the bow you have, the quality of like your gear, your, your rest, your bow, they are a little harder to get to tune. Not, not always sometimes, you know, to get them to fly right and to get them to impact consistently. Um, and different bowls is going to be maybe a little more challenging to do that on. And then just, um, like their form, their ability to execute a shot, not torque the bow changing, you know, the flight path of the broadhead. Um, so typically with a head lobber, you're usually talking like a closer distance shot. You're not going to be trying to take heads off at 35 yards, 40 yards, where, you know, if you get a bird that hangs up and you're shooting a mechanical, you, you know, and, and you're confident in your ability and, and that's inside of your comfortable distance, you could probably ethically take that shot with like a, a mechanical, right. you know, body shot. So you're talking a closer distance game typically. Um, 
And then again, the whole draw length arrow setup comes into play, which would be the interesting part for you to see if we can get you to shoot one of those without taking your own finger off. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then like, what about poundage? How far, because you guys talk about hearing you guys in the shop shooting them, you turn down your poundage. Mm-hmm. How far do you have to turn it down? Technically, you probably don't have to turn it down, but I feel like slowing it down is not disadvantage. You know, is not a disadvantage to having a slower arrow. If, if anything, slowing it down might help it track a little better, fly a little better. Um, so, like, I typically, again, shorter draw length, 28, 28 and a half. Um, I think I usually shoot my bows at, like, 58 to 60 pounds. And the nice thing about that, um, like, the again, a bird I shot last year, I was at full draw for, like, 40-some seconds waiting for the right shot opportunity because – this thing was just attacking my decoy. Mm-hmm. So its head was constantly moving. Its neck right. was constantly moving, you know, jumping up and down on top of it. And so the ability to hold that bow back for a longer period of time, you know, it's not a far shot. It's not like I'm trying to punch through a shoulder. I mean, it's a turkey. The blades right. are pretty freaking sharp on those yeah, uh, and I was, decaps. I always turned mine down too when I was shooting the, the head choppers. It's a, like John said, it's a close quarter game. So you're not really worried about trying to shoot 30, 40 yards. It's a, 20 and under and you're hoping 10 and under you know so the the poundage you're shooting really doesn't matter and i do think it helps i know on my setups it definitely helped with the the consistency in the broadhead and i was usually right around that 55 to 60 you know depending on the year and the bow i had but that's where i was shooting at so most guys that do the head lopper setups are they running uh, a fixed or mechanical broadhead besides that for that bird that does hang up or do you see most people just running a head lopper either or so fixed mechanic? Brandon and I actually took the same approach on this the first year we did it, sighted in, tuned for these head choppers. And I don't know if it was just like by the grace of God or divine intervention or whatever you call it. But like when I, I would sight in my head, head lobber or decap style heads, my top pin at 10 yards and my second pin at 20 yards. And then if I grabbed my normal arrow, which is the same diameter, but weighs a lot less, my 10 yard pin for my head chopper impacted the exact same with my other arrow at 20. Wow. So (laughs) (laughs) then I I basically would set up my, my bottom pins for like 30, 40 or 40, 50 with like, oh yeah, you know, what if I, I've never shot one before. So what Mm -hmm. if I like hit one? And it's running away and it's like head is half on doing the, you know, the, uh, like a dead chicken thing. You cut chicken's head off. It runs away. Like I didn't know I've never shot one of these things before. So I wanted, I was like prepared for that. And then after the, after doing it a couple of years in a row, like I don't even, the last couple of years, I haven't even brought a mechanical as like a follow-up. Yeah. And I, I think most guys that we set up are fully committing to it one way or the other. I do know a few guys that like John said, once you get set up, you know, those head choppers are sighted in. Maybe you take your standard arrow and just try and see where it's hitting with some of those pins in case you need it. Um, but I think for the most part, guys are just going in fully committing to it, and that's what they're going to use. Kind of circling back to what you were talking about earlier, John, um, you were talking about shot placement with the decaps. Um, you said frontals strutting, you're not taking that shot. Are you waiting for this turkey to... Like fan down, stretch his neck out. Like oh no, frontal is frontal is perfect. I fr- mean, frontal. Yeah, it's if you had a bird at full strut that was facing away from you, well yeah. then you can't even see their head. You mm-hmm. know, they're they're all tucked back and doing their thing. And um, so, have you shot one that was full strut straight on, and you went for the head? 
I have not yet. Uh, I'm just, I'm curious, like, how much penetration are you getting with that huge cutting diameter on the blades? I I don't know. I want to take that shot. I haven't had the opportunity to, because when I bought that full strut decoy, the last, like, three or four birds I've killed have been just attacking the absolute bejesus out of that thing. Really? And it's like, you're waiting for them to stop moving. So, and every time they've been, like, either broadside or like slightly quartering too, but you're shooting at the neck, you're right? Not the body. So mm-hmm. that quartering doesn't matter as much, but every single one I've shot has been a full clean decap arrows, 10 yards behind the bird and they're headless. <laughs> yeah. Actually the first one I shot, you know, doing the head shooting thing, it came in kind of sideways, you know, from behind the blind coming out towards the decoys. And I came to full draw the things like, three steps from the blind and it's walking away from us to get to the decoys decoys were maybe at five yards and i had to wait it's had i couldn't see it because it was full strut so it's facing towards the decoys which is facing away from us couldn't see the head and i just i was at full drop felt like longer than it probably was right but as soon as it just started to slightly turn and i could see the head you know again it's only three yards my pin was on it and i actually clipped one of the tail feathers you know as it was strutting and then hit him in the head and you know Made a good shot on that one, and he down for the count. But that was pretty neat. As far as these decap goes, like how durable are the blades on these things? Because I mean, if you miss and you're hitting yeah. that field full of rocks and whatnot, or wherever you're hunting, do they withstand up to the pressures? I I'll go ahead, John. I've had very good success. Actually, the last three birds I've shot, I've shot with the same broadhead. So I, you've never had a blade break or anything on you i have not i've never had a blade break on them i i don't i haven't even resharpened the blades and every single one is just and and, and you're shooting the solid decap the solid decaps yeah so the and they're they're a very much more durable heavy duty one the very first year i did the head chopping thing i was shooting like a a different brand it was a very less expensive one i wanted to try that to see like "Eh, am i into this or not Mm -hmm. um and i that came in a pack of three and I broke two of them just trying to, like, tune my bow and sight them in, shooting them into a pillow, and I broke two of them. And when I shot my bird, it snapped two of the blades off, and one blade was so bent up that, like, there, there was no way you could ever even reuse the thing. But now that I've been shooting these other ones, they're, they're durable. I know a few guys that have broke blades on them, but you can buy just the replacement blades. They just screw on with, like, an Allen wrench-style head. Um, and they're, they're beefy. It's a 200-grain head. It's not some chintzy... Right four inch wide, hundred grain, paper thin blades. I mean, they're, they're pretty heavy duty. Yeah. I know the first few years I, I wasn't using the solids. I was using a couple different brands that I tried the first few years and same thing like John, I broke a couple just trying to sight them in and practice, make sure they're hitting good. And then the birds that I did kill with them, blades were sheared off, broken, you know, they're one shot type done. Um, But when I switched to the solid ones, yeah, you can practice into most targets, right? I mean, you can practice as much as you want. And I don't know if I've broken any blades on those. Did you ever shoot yours into a foam target? Um, actually, yeah. I had an old, I had an old uh, target that was pretty beat up. You know, didn't stop field tips real great, and I shot them into that. And, and they, they, they yep. held up to that. Yep. I've only shot mine into like a, I mean, it's basically a pillow. It's a box with a bunch right. of pillow batting in it, and yep. then cut out some cardboard that your you know arrow just hits the pillow yeah. batting. No, I think as long as you ha- don't have like a brand new super stiff target, you know, maybe a target that's beat up where you do the, the pillow stuffing thing, then you're good. You can shoot them really almost as much as you want. This is going to be the first year I'm going to try these decaps out. Being that you guys have used both, I'm assuming you've shot, I know you said you shot with both broadheads. 
you've done the same also yeah after seeing what each one does and how hard it is to find that vital on a turkey are you guys all the way decaps now or are you still on the fence with both no i mean the decaps are definitely way more fun yeah i mean it it's way more fun it's way easier to aim at the head and neck area when you connect on one it's there's no running after them. There's no guessing you know, how to make it the right, the right shot. I mean, it's a, they're down, you know, they're flopping. Nice. <laughs> so, I don't know. I'm, I'm not like a hundred percent saying that I'll never go back to a fixed plate or a mechanical, excuse me, and do the body shooting thing. I mean, that's what I'm essentially going to set up this year if I do hunt. But most of that's just because my kids are, you know, I'm taking my kids out first. If I was just solely hunting for myself, I'd still be running the heads. I, uh, I think it's a situational thing. So. Being like a, a resident hunter, Minnesota tag, I'm hunting places that I can go set up blinds, you know, a week before the season or the morning of, right? Um, and and I, I have the confidence that I know there's birds on these spots. I mean, we've killed birds off of a couple of these properties pretty much within a day or two of opener in the last three or four years. I think opening morning that we've gone the last few years, we've had opportunities or at least a bird that comes in. It just kind of depends on who's up to bat first, one guy or the other. Um, but I think if I was doing more like an out-of-state hunt, like if I was going to try to run down to Nebraska or South Dakota or Iowa, or if I wanted to go shoot a Miriam or, you know, whatever, right? I'm going to go hunt somewhere else. I probably, I would probably actually lean towards a mechanical for if that bird does hang up. I don't have the confidence of hunting nebraska or south Dakota, these other states i've never turkey hunted there so with the unknown part of it not knowing i'm a hunt probably going to be a public land kind of thing i would prefer to have the opportunity to shoot a little farther because i'm confident my shooting abilities practicing for that in case a bird does hang up or terrain is different or whatever it might be i feel like you would maybe increase your odds a little bit but for around home I see myself being a decap shooter for the next, I don't know how many years. I mean, it is literally like Brandon said, like turkey hunting is fun. The calling aspect of it is fun. It's different than deer hunting. It's something to do in the spring after a miserable winter, like we've mm -hmm. had this year. And the, I've shot a few birds, you know, expandable body shooting them. And just the, like the first time I, <laughs> that I decapped one, I, I like, I was, I was by myself. And I was literally laughing out loud in the blind. That, that's what I was going to ask. Is it just like, a, oh, my, look at what just happened. It's like, just, you know, you see it on TV, you see it on these YouTube videos, whatever. But like watching it happen in person, it was just like, oh, my goodness. <laughs> I don't know. Something like took over. I couldn't help it. I was just laughing. Kind of want to hit rewind and do it again. Yeah. I mean, it almost feels morbid. I mean, you just killed this thing. And all of a sudden, you're just sitting there kind of like laughing like a little schoolgirl or it something, is, right? Like, morbid. Yeah. You, you like serial killer. Red lights oh. going off over here. But it, yeah, it's just there's, there's a fun aspect to it. And one of my buddies that I turkey hunt with, he still body shoots with an expandable. Last year, we actually killed two birds on the same morning. Uh, same thing we've done the last couple of years, actually, uh, kind of luck has been on our side with that, but I, I decapped one, went and crawled out of the ground blind, pulled the bird out. And then a few minutes later, a half hour later, had another bird come in that, you know, had kind of hung up behind us for a while. And then he body shot it and he didn't quite tendering him. And even just like, it's like, ah, do you shoot him again? Do you not shoot him again? There wasn't quite enough time to like get another arrow and try to hit this bird again. Like it went down, it went. 10 steps, turkey steps. So what is that? Five yards, six yards. Mm -hmm. And it like laid down. 
And I'm like, oh, sweet. Like, you must have hit him better than I thought you did. And then as we're kind of like, you know, giving each other fist bumps and high fives, all of a sudden this bird gets back up and starts like getting out of our lives. Like, oh, shoot. Like, here's another arrow. Shoot him again. And the angles just didn't work in the ground blind. He couldn't get out far enough to, you know, get his bow pointed hard to the left to be able to shoot this thing again. So who had to bail out? Well, so I bailed out and started chasing this thing down. <laughs> and everything was great. Like, I, you know, I, I was getting close to the bird. You could tell, like, yeah, we could probably just wait a few minutes and it would probably expire right here. But it was one of those things, like, he had to get going to work. I had to get going to work. So it's like, all right, this has to happen now. So I'm literally, like, get to this field edge. The bird takes off into the woods, and I'm, like, right behind it. I'm about to, like, just step on it with my left foot as I'm running. And as you're running through the woods, you know, you're kind of breaking branches with your arms and your chest and you're trying to not get poked in the eye and all, everything was working great. All these branches were breaking as I was running in there. And then all of a sudden one of them didn't, (laughs) I got like clotheslined across my gut by this vine. And now I, I go from almost being to like squash this Turkey to now the thing's 10 yards ahead of me again. And even like we got back out onto the field edge after we recovered the bird, everything was fine. Um, it expired very, very quickly after that. So we're, we're kind of celebrating. We got both of our birds on the field edge. And even my buddy was like, man, what a rodeo. Like, I think I'm going to try and shoot those decaps next year. Like, it's just, it's instant, just instant, Yep. you know, Either yep. there it's not, it's like a headshot clean. It's gone or it's a miss. Right. Exactly. Yep. yep. Yeah. And that's the, the, I mean, that's really the big benefit of it that we've all heard we've all done it ourselves you know had to run one down or two down and you hear it from people all the time they're just tough yeah i mean they really are it's really easy to maybe clip a vital but not you know not tendering it and make the most perfect shot you know again their vitals are a little weird and that's what's nice with the head shooting even just on the meat side of things like yeah i i breasted out and took the legs out of both of those birds like as we're on the tailgates there you know cut cut it's all over and the carnage that that broadhead did he, I mean, he shot it right square through mm-hmm. both breasts, got into the rib cage, clipped enough vitals to end it. But like, you look at this carnage piece of ground turkey from that broadhead, and then I do mine, and there's not a mark on it anywhere. And it's like, well, that definitely looks more appetizing. Like, you don't right. got to try to cut around. A lot more it. pleasing to the eye. Yeah. Now, I know, like, you've turkey hunted a lot, Troy. I have. Now, I've seen some videos that you've showed me back in the day, you know, when you just came into the shop customer relationship i've seen some of the yep. videos that you used to take turkey hunting what have you you've always shot body in the i've past? always done body and last year was i've had two birds that i couldn't find last last year i had issues with one that i'd rather not even talk about but long story short i ended up getting them um and that's kind of why i wanted to start looking into this decap right. stuff and because i mean every bird i've ever shot they're they're within decap range. They're right there. So it's like, why am I not using right. one of these? Why am I not yep. trying this? Yep. So it's kind of something I'm interested in, especially hearing your reaction to that bird you got by yourself. And it's just like, whoa, what just happened? This, this is crazy. I'm excited to give it a whirl. Even the first time that I decapped one and I had another buddy with me in the blind, his reaction to seeing it happen in person was like the same thing. I mean, he like just joy overtook him for some reason so basically what you're saying is anybody who archery hunts turkeys they owe it to themselves to try it once you gotta try it absolutely i mean if if turkey hunting's fun and it kind of adds a little bit more of a challenge because you're you're pretty much just wanting that bird to commit into your decoys Mm -hmm. you're pretty limited on range Well, and i think that's one of the 
well, that's probably one of the best parts I think it's that I've found with it. Part. I'm very, very impatient. And a lot of times when I was body shooting them, those birds were coming into the decoy and they'd hit that 30, 25, maybe 20 yards. I'm shooting. I got my decoys at five yards. They're coming in, but I'm taking the first shot I got, right? What if they don't come in? That's how it was always my yep. mindset. Well, now when I started head shooting, well, you just let them come to the decoy. And all of a sudden you start realizing that Man, once these birds are committed and they're coming in, they're coming all the way in. Absolutely. So instead of shooting them at 20 or 25 yards in the body, if you just let them come into the decoys, they're coming into five yards, three yards, wherever you have your decoys at, and that's where your shot's going to be. I think that was the most eye-opening for me when I switched to the head shooting. It made me maybe be a little more patient, you know? Well, it's fun, too, because you get to watch them that much more, especially like the last couple years, watching them just beat the tar out of that decoy, like... You're you're sitting four yards away from this thing. It doesn't even know you're there, and it is just going to town on your decoy. It's spurring it and hitting it with his wings and pecking at it. And you're just you're an observer of this, and it's like, man, is this how turkeys treat each other? Like in the wild, like <laughs> these things are mean, man. <laughs> this is just getting me amped up for April. It can't come soon enough. But hey, we got more to talk about. But I want to take a quick little break to hear from one of our pro staff here at Archery Country. <laughs> Welcome to this week's Archery Country Pro Tech Tip. Hey everybody, this is Adam from Weight Park Archery Country with your Pro Tech Tip of the Week. This week's topic is paper tuning. Paper tuning is something that if you're in the industry, you've probably heard a bajillion different times. You go on YouTube and you search that and you're going to have thousands of results of people giving their two cents on paper tuning and how it's done and what's good or bad about it. Here at Archery Country, paper tuning is a service that we provide. Uh, It's actually free if you're a customer of ours and you buy a bow from us for the lifetime of you owning that bow. Uh, If you didn't buy equipment from us, you're more than welcome to have um, us paper tune your bow. Uh, When we tune a bow, we're going to put it on our draw board and then we're going to take it to the paper tuning station. What is paper tuning? Paper tuning is where you have a backstop, you have some type of stand to hold a piece of paper taunt, and then as an archer or a bow technician, we're going to stand probably five to six feet away from that paper. And we're going to shoot that bow with one of your arrows through it. Now, what are we analyzing or what is that telling us? We're able to see how that arrow enters through paper. And if that arrow is oscillating or going in crooked, we can analyze the point end and the knock end and see what kind of tear that arrow is basically showing us multiple different types of tears and what that's going to tell us and helps us in troubleshooting some issues. Most people are going to bring in their bows once a year and have us paper tune them unless they change up equipment times when you need to paper tune or recommend that you paper tune. If you do a dramatic adjustment in draw length or draw weight, if you change arrows, whether it's arrow weight, arrow size, arrow spine, If you ever have a new rest installed, definitely want to paper tune it at that point. What that does, it's going to change how that arrow comes out of the bow. Sometimes it's dramatic, sometimes not so much. By paper tuning, we're going to make sure that the rest is properly installed and functioning properly. Make sure that it's at the proper height, left and right, up and down, and that it's within center shot. And then also identifying the arrow, uh, if it's over or under spine, 
and then just seeing how that arrow goes on that string and how your knock is traveling as you shoot. So if your cams are out of time, we're gonna see that in a paper tear. And that's why we incorporate the draw board into our tuning. Paper tuning is something I do on every single one of my bows. It's a great starting point when it comes to tuning. Now I wanna reemphasize that it's a great starting point. A lot of times people paper, have us paper tune their bows and then they go home and say they shoot fixed broadheads at 70 yards and they say, boy, things just aren't flying that good or whatever, not holding a good enough group. Yeah, I had you guys paper tune it. A lot of times paper tuning being an initial starting point, we recommend more advanced tuning like broadhead tuning or walkback tuning or bear shaft tuning. By shooting it through paper, it's going to get us down that road a lot faster and a lot more accurately. So when we do do those more advanced types of tuning, it's gonna be minor adjustments being made, not major. We've seen a lot of times where people skip those steps, they watch some videos, they wanna do it themselves, and they come in and their rest is just moved way out into left or right field or some really bizarre type of uh, adjustment that in theory seems proper, but it just definitely is not. And it's adverse to uh, efficient bow performance. So a lot of times, if things are not progressing with somebody, if they're shooting broadheads and not getting the groups they want, we know the bow's tuned to us, we might have them shoot it through paper. Because what we end up finding is that even though the equipment's tuned, some people, uh, actually a lot of archers, can have issues with, say, grip and torque. And that is really going to be prevalent in a paper tune, you're going to see some pretty drastic tears left and right. I've seen it where people had shot through paper and they'll shoot with an extreme right tear one time and an extreme left tear the other. And it all comes down to that grip. And you can physically see that riser being torqued. And that's one of the cool parts about paper tuning is it shows us right there. It's evident. We can work with somebody on the range, have them shoot through paper, give them a tech tip, say adjust some grip or some pressure, face pressure, have them shoot again and you can see a result. Sometimes it's a release. Sometimes it's how they activate that release. And most times, again, it's gonna be just the grip of the bow. Now, if they're consistently getting a good tear where it's uh, the same distance each time, the same direction each time, then we can start making some adjustments, basically fine tuning it. Bows over time are are gonna stretch, things are gonna get out of whack, and that's why we recommend each year bringing them into tune. If you're a turkey hunter and you shoot a different arrow setup than what you do for deer, bring that bow in, we can help you out, get it tuned. It's probably gonna need a different tune if you're shooting a heavier broadhead on there or a different type of poundage, uh, changing up things in general, whether it's draw weight dramatically or draw length, installing a new rest. That's all our job to make sure that bow's properly tuned for you and just to help you troubleshoot some, some grouping issues. Again, this is Adam Kramer with your Pro Tech Tip of the Week. Now back to the podcast. Hey guys, hope you enjoyed that little tip of the week. So getting back into this podcast now, I want to talk a little bit about like strategizing um, for you guys who have done it. Let's start with Adam a little bit. So you said you've hunted gun before for turkey. Was there any specific way you wanted to be set up? Did you guys go scouting for these turkeys? Did you roost them? What, like, what was your plan? What did you do? So 
When I was hunting, uh, this was back in my high school, college days, I was working at a farm and every day we'd be doing field work out on the tractors and then you'd see these flocks of turkeys, they'd come in consistent time and as it got closer to turkey hunting season, I started telling my buddy about it. He was an avid turkey hunter and he's the one that actually got me on my first birds. And so it was just timing when we would see them, where we knew that they were roosting and then setting up in that location. And then he actually was hunting it prior to me. He had access to it as well. And because uh, we both worked the same farm. And so he had success. And then so we were just kind of uh, copying his routine or his setup. Are you guys just on the ground in a blind? Yeah, we're just on the ground. Again, we're using shotguns at the time, no bows. And so we didn't have to be in a blind or anything. We were just tucked back up in tall grass in a brush, not silhouetted. And then uh, just on the edge of this woods and then egg land. And then we just calm down out of the roost did you get were you guys using decoys doing that or just more no. so you were just he did have them. a decoy um now that you mention it he did have a decoy that time and gosh i think it was like uh i think it was a strutting tom yeah yeah but more than anything you guys were relying on just pattern mm-hmm. yeah. pattern but then yeah he also had calls there so he could call him in closer yeah. to us get him out of roost a little quicker locate him as well so if we needed to move at the last second we could right Brandon, you've hunted Nebraska before, right, or South Dakota for turkeys? Yep, both. Yeah. I, fe- I feel like I remember one time where you guys were early, like snowstorm early kind of thing. Yeah, I think that was Nebraska. Yeah, so year. in a situation like that, because like this year, we've just got, what, a few inches of snow the last right. couple of days, and it, it just feels like winter's not going to let go. If we have snow leading into our opener, how does that affect your strategies or scouting? Right. Or, well, for... For me in Minnesota, it doesn't change much just because the property that I'm able to hunt, um, especially taking my kids out, we're on a food plot. The turkeys are roosting up on the ridges um, back behind the food plot. And so we walk to the food plot, you know, in the blinds that we already have pre-set up. So it's pretty easy, but that's kind of what I got to do with my kids. I'm bringing out chairs, snacks. (laughs) They're shooting a crossbow. I'm bringing out the crossbow. I mean, I look like I am going on a week's-long vacation when we're going to the blind of turkey on for an hour. But that year that we were in Nebraska, um, when we were there early, I believe their season opens, like their archery season's like two weeks before, three weeks before maybe the gun season. I don't know that for sure, but it was definitely earlier than the Minnesota one. And yeah, we had snow, it was cold, and the birds were flocked up big time, like flocks of 50, 60, 70 birds. And you weren't like calling, decoying, like it just nothing was working. So we found after about a day of doing that, that that wasn't going to work, and then it was just finding where they're roosting and trying to get to in between a field they're going to feed on in the morning, and then same thing in the evening, cut them off to their roost. So it was more like what Adam was saying, pattern. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, probably a few, had we been a few weeks later, I think the calling, you know, those birds are breaking apart a little more, calling, decoying would have worked better, but in that instance, it was pattern. You know, you had to be in front of them yeah. or where they were going. So, like, John, I know earlier you said you like using that full strut decoy. Is there, like, are you using just the full strut? Or do you have a hand out, out there with the full strut? The last few years we've been, well, on on one of the properties that we hunt pretty regularly, if you see, typically in the mornings, like, if you see uh, maybe one turkey, it's, you know, not uncommon to see, like, a single hen, right? But it seems like if you see one, you're seeing, like, a dozen or 15 or 18 and kind of depends on the time of the year, right? Like they're not quite broke up all the way. Um, and we've we've had success on that place in the past, which is like a couple of decoys. Um, 
but last year I think we actually had eight decoys out the morning <laughs> that we killed ours. <laughs> Looked like a goose spread. So duck, duck hunters. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, that was pretty intense. Um, so, so basically you were trying to mimic all these giant flocks you're seeing? Well, that's just what ended up happening. I think it was more so like, okay, I'll bring my decoys. And then my buddy was like, okay, I'll bring my decoys. It's like, well, <laughs> you don't really need to, but we can. Uh, we did. <laughs> so we had a lot of them out right. there. I think we ended up having like, as I had my full strut, we had one of his like Jake's that didn't look good at all. Um, and then yeah, like six or seven hens with it. It was, it was quite the spread. It looked realistic. And it worked for you? Did you well, guys get one that We day? killed two birds that day. So right in the decoys? Yeah, both of them. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't think it is necessary to put eight decoys out. <laughs> it was kind of fun. It was fun. Yeah, right. It was something to do. So, yeah. You want to put your decoys out? Yeah. You want to put your decoys out? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I know for me generally, you know, generally anyways, I'm running two hens. Um, I like to have a feeding hen. You know, makes it, I feel like it, you know, it makes the turkeys calmer, you know, if they see one just feeding. Um, then I'll usually have a, like an upright hand or, you know, one that's more just standing there. And then whether I'm using a full strut or maybe I'm using the three-quarter strut Jake, got a few different male decoys. But usually that's my go-to is one male decoy, two hens, um, spreading them out a little bit. You don't, you definitely don't want to get your decoys too bunched up. You know, you don't want to have three decoys or two decoys within two or three yards of each other, you know, right. try to spread them out. If you watch turkeys in a field, they're not all, even if you got 20 turkeys out there, they're not just in one tiny bunched up cluster, you know, so you try to make it look as uh, natural as possible, I guess. I always face the decoys towards the blind. All um, of them? Generally all of them, or at least like in some fashion towards the blind, maybe angling a little bit. They might not be all directly right facing at you in the blind, but towards the blind in some type of direction. I don't like to have them facing totally away from the blind mm -hmm. um you know turkeys are a pretty visual animal and i feel like when a male bird comes out and he's strutting he wants those hens to see him maybe that male bird to, you know show his dominance if those birds are not looking at him right they're looking towards your decoy i feel like it tends to make him want to come a little closer and then a little closer you know try to get he wants to get within sight of those birds he wants those birds to see him mm -hmm. you know so setting your decoys up properly I know I think I think is a big thing too. So would you tell guys think about it from like not necessarily an aerial perspective, but if you were standing a hundred yards to the north of your decoys and then a hundred yards to the west of your decoys and then a hundred yards to the south of your decoys, right? The visual perspective you get from those different angles are is that does it look natural from all those angles and also the way that like your hens and your, your strutter right. decoy, all that stuff is facing. You don't want it to look like it's in just one little like tight bunch. Right. Think about seeing when you see 30, 40 turkeys this time of year in a field, they're, they're kind of generally all facing the same way. Cause it seems like they kind of feed linear, right. li linearly. Right. Right. Um, so they're all facing kind of one direction and you want that bird to think I need to be in front of those hens to see me. Right. So my question is, when you set out 47 decoys, how long did that take <laughs> <really> to strategically <laughs> place each one? It didn't take that long. I mean, the farthest decoy was probably eight yards away from the blind or 10 yards away from the blind. And the closest one was like, like if you took an arrow shaft, you, you know, stretch your arm out, you could probably take sure. it. <laughs> I actually had uh, something similar. This was a few years back and I'd been hunting, you know, all season with no, no luck, was seeing birds the the 
place I was hunting, you know, there's other people that hunt it too. So the birds are getting some pressure being called at seeing decoys. And I always ran with my same deal, you know, two hens and a jake or two hens and a tom, maybe one hen and a jake. I mean, I was out there 10, 10 sits maybe, and just nothing was happening. These birds would come into the field. They'd see the decoys. I could call. They'd gobble. They'd strut, but they would never commit. And so finally I went out one morning. This is going to be my last morning. The season's winding down, and I'm, I'm done. I can't take it anymore. This is going to be my last sit. And I pulled all my decoys from every blind, the landowner's land I was hunting on. I took some of his decoys out of some of his blinds. And so same thing, I had like seven or eight decoys. And I was just thinking, you know, these birds were always, <coughs> excuse me, these birds were always coming out, you know. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about that. These birds were coming out always in big flocks, right? There's always 12 birds, 15 birds. And so I thought, <clears throat> I need to compete with this. Mm-hmm. So I put out seven or eight decoys, and these birds came out on the field. They seen all these decoys. I never called, and they just came marching right up. Mm-hmm. And there was three jakes and, like, I don't know, it must have been a dozen hens with them, and I ended up shooting one of the jakes. But I feel like in that instance, all those decoys helped me because I had hunted these same birds many, many times. They never would commit. They'd never get within 60 yards of the decoys. And I didn't even call that morning. It was like they seen all these decoys and it seemed more, you know, I don't know if it was real to them or because they were in such a big group. Maybe they wanted to be with a big group. I don't know. But it it worked out for me. It's funny how finicky they can be because I, I, I can recall how many times I've been in the blind roosting the same birds over and over. And every morning they don't, they don't care that you're right. even there. Right. And then all of a sudden one day you change one thing up. You try a different call. You position something different and... Bam, there it happens. Mm-hmm. The mood of that bird. I kind of wonder, like, some days, does it depend on weather? You know, does does a sunnier or higher pressure or lower pressure day, like, fire them up? Or if it's cold and rainy, oh, you know, does that, like, turn them off a little bit? They're not really doing their thing. And I, I would really like to look into the, I don't know, the science of it, I guess. Or, mm-hmm. like, if there's a study on that, that would be really neat to, to know. Right. right. I know I had one year where it was kind of the same thing as Brandon talked. Like I think I hunted 10 days straight, the first 10 days of the season, seeing birds every time, couldn't get anything to commit. And it was like, it was one of those years where it just, it was cold. It lingered cold. I know opening, opening morning that year, I had an opportunity and I airballed on it. Um, but there was still snow on the ground at that time. And I was like, man, I'm just burned out like 10 mornings in a row of this. And then working, right after so i'm only hunting maybe two or three hours in the morning then come in and working a 10 hour day and then going to bed and you're like getting up at three or four it in the gets morning. long doesn't it, it? yeah and the longer into the season you go the longer the days are you know mm-hmm. that springtime you're adding eight minutes each time you know every day of daylight um and i was like man i just i need to take a break i'm gonna give this place a rest even though i've been seeing birds all the time and i like just called it quits for a little while and it's a long season in minnesota we have a month and a half and I think I took like a two or three week break and then checked the weather knowing I had a Sunday off coming up or maybe it was a Monday and it was supposed to be like a high of 70, sunny, calm winds, just this beautiful spring day. I'm like, that's the day. That's the day I'm going to go. I'm going to kill one that day. And I went out, hunted the same property, gave it a couple week break, had just a couple decoys out. And I think I ended up having eight male birds come into my decoys that morning. I had like four jakes and four toms all in one group. It was epic. I ended up shooting one of them like super close distance. And it was like, is it because of the weather change? Or was it just because I gave it a break? Or was it because it was going to be a sunny, beautiful day? Is that what made them like fire up? And then 
there was like no hens that morning. It was really weird. Like this property had had a ton of hens on it all spring, all winter. And then giving it that break and it's like, did the hens just fly down and go nest right away? And then that's why these birds were like competing for the last like hen that was squawking like crazy. Mm-hmm. I don't know what did it, but it worked. Right. Yep. I know obviously everybody's favorite time is probably the morning. You know, you get that sunrise, the birds got the roost. But have any of you guys hunted like midday, had success midday? I've I've had a few midday like vocalizing back and forth with me, which doesn't happen too often, midday stuff. Um, I think I've only tagged out once in the afternoon. Every other thing, like however many turkeys I've shot, probably a dozen of them. I think they were all morning. Mm. I've actually had some, not that I've hunted a lot of midday stuff, but I've actually had really good luck like around that 10, 11 in the morning, noon, somewhere in there. And my son, my oldest son shot his first bird at like noon. Really? First time we ever went out. Yeah, mm. I, I've had good luck at that. I think some of that is, like you said, maybe the hens are starting to, you know, lay down. They're on their nests. They've broken off the pack. They've done their feeding. And now the, the toms and jakes, you know, they're out searching for for another hen. Mm-hmm. I know the first few years that I started turkey hunting, like right away in the morning, I would hear a gobble and I just couldn't figure out what I was doing wrong. And it's like, man, I know all these guys that are like killing birds right away in the morning. And like, I don't even see a bird until eight, nine, 10 o'clock. And there was a few times I went and sat like all day on that place. And you would see these different strutters come in and out of the field from different places. So you knew it was different birds, not just one bird entering a field from different angles. Right. Um, and I think the, the, the first bird I shot, which I didn't end up, <laughs> I didn't end up killing. Right. Uh, long story. Um, but that was like 10 30, 11 in the morning. And I'd called a, like, I wouldn't call a lot every 15, 20 minutes, throw a couple of squawks out kind of thing. And I don't know if it had something to do with like that bird heard me, remembered where it was, went and did his thing with the hens. They got sick of him. He wasn't getting any response from him. So then he decided to come looking. I don't know if there's like something yeah. that goes with that. Of, I think there is. Yeah. yeah. I think I've had that happen a few times too, where it's all like those birds just remember, you know, and an hour or two could go by, but they've heard you. And if things aren't going their way with the, you know, those other hens, they, you know, they could circle back and, and come in. So maybe staying and sitting a little later right. if, if you have the time. Right. With the you mentioning the turkeys remember certain situations or whatever, I wanted to ask Adam. Adam, now you raised turkeys. Do you think those turkeys remember when you slaughtered that last batch? <laughs> There's no witnesses. There's no witnesses when you're done. Right. So, yeah, nobody remembers, yeah. and it's a new batch and just circle just of life. They're just as dumb as the previous ones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's one thing with those turkeys, man. They're... Uh, for a small brain, sometimes they can frustrate you. Oh, right? Man. So many people say, oh, the turkeys are stupid. Well, they've outsmarted me I don't know how many times, so I must be an idiot. How does that make you feel when you get outsmarted by something that's got a brain <laughs> the size of a pea, you know? <laughs> well, we're getting kind of long here on time, and I, I wanted to just maybe hit a few more things here before we wrap things up. Um, real quick, guys, calls. Your go-to, Brandon, what, what's your go-to? If you can put one call in your bag, what's it going to be? I would, man, I, I go back and forth on my, you know, just a mouth or a diaphragm call. Um, but if I had to pick one, I've got my, you know, just my slate call, friction call, Woodhaven. Um, I would probably run that. I'm pretty decent with my mouth call, but when the birds get in close, I'm, I'm good with a mouth call if I can, if I can be loud. Right, but if those birds are coming in, say they're a hundred yards and less, and maybe I need to do some 
quiet talking, some subtle calls. I'm not, I have not mastered that yet with the mouth call. Um, so I think I just pick, I just pick up my slate call. It's easy. I mean, slate. anybody, anybody can use a call like that. Yeah. You know, you don't have to be, you know, practice a little bit and get some of the calls down, but it, it's really pretty easy. I agree with that. That's what I like using too. John? I would say Brandon hit it on the head. I can, I love my mouth calls, my diaphragm calls for like that mid morning. If you don't have nothing talking around you and you can, you feel like they can hear you on the other side of the section, right? Mm -hmm. You can really reach out and make some noise with them, but I cannot be quieter with them. So I like, I actually use my slate call most of the time. And then having just like a couple different strikers to make a little different noise or different pitch to it. Adam, with all that being said, which way do you think you're going to go this year? You're going to try a slate, mouth call? It's whatever you bring and whatever gets me on birds. <laughs> like I said, I'm the trigger man. I trust your experience. You're going to buy all the high-dollar decoys for me. You're going to put them out. You're going to take me all those honey holes that you've never told us about, and you're just going to put me on a bird. That's what it's all about, right? That's that. what you promised. <laughs> Wait, I promised? It's on. It's, I, it's I thought recorded. John promised that. Yeah. Take turns. <laughs> Now, real quick, I want to test some of your guys' knowledge. Okay. Let's see here. I want to know, okay, who knows how fast a turkey can fly? I definitely don't. I know it can probably, I'm pretty fast, but it can probably fly faster than I can run. (laughs) I would (laughs) probably say so. (laughs) But they're a big bird. Um, 20. 20? Adam, you have any guesses? Fly or run? Fly. Fly. Oh gosh. I don't know. Hen or a tom. <laughs> <laughs> There's more drag. Do you want the oh. you want to know the length of their legs too or <laughs> I don't I I'm guessing what'd you say, twenty? Yeah. Twenty five. Twenty five, John? I know they can't fly faster than a Buick LeSabre because I hit one. <laughs> <laughs> Couldn't outrun that. Well, Basically, a turkey can fly 40 to 50 miles an hour. That kind of shocked me when yeah. I saw that. Yeah. I now, is this really something you're, you've looked this up? This is, this you're is not just facts. This out of a These hat. are facts. All right. Wind, wind at that the back. That is actually surprising that they seem so big and clumsy. Well, you think about that, though. Big, right? Yeah. You get that momentum, all that big breast meat flying down. I mean, they can get whipping, I bet. <laughs> <laughs> How about this? How about this? What colors do turkeys see? I would assume all of them because they got dang good eyesight. That's their eyesight is impeccable. Yeah, it's I, crazy. I, I don't. I would assume. I, I don't know, but I would assume like John, they can just see all colors. All colors. I'm assuming you're going to tell us. Oh, I've got <laughs> the answers right here. Adam, any guesses? I'm guessing red and white. I was always told never to wear red and white when hunting turkeys. I thought just that's so that other guys don't shoot you. Is that why? No, for <laughs> shotgun hunting. <laughs> Twofold. <laughs> so basically, a turkey can see red, green, blue, and then UVs, hmm. which is kind of interesting. Yeah. I would have never thought like greens. How about lifespan, Adam? The lifespan of a wild turkey is going to probably be a little bit different than your domestic. <laughs> yeah, probably. I don't know, I'm guessing. You know, it's like a northern bird. These winters got to be tough on them. So I'm guessing like three years. Southern birds, five. Okay. I think that a three-year-old bird in Minnesota is is not common. So you're going to stick with that about three? That's got to be top end. Yeah, I, I'm three, four. I, three, four. I don't know how long they can live. but Well, 
three to five years is the average lifespan of so a wild you, turkey. So how do you age a turkey? Besides just like mature and immature. Just like a deer, you look inside the mouth. Look Count at how tea. worn the check teeth check are. Check the teeth. <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea how you would age a turkey. Well, I just want to know how Wikipedia knows that they ask for its driver's license. Yeah. <laughs> All right, you guys. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. I know we had fun. We we could probably keep going for another two hours on this and really dive into a bunch more. I'm sure we'd like to, but we don't want to bore you guys too much. So I hope you enjoyed. And we will see you guys next time. Thank you for listening to Archery Country Podcast. 